Fab. Uh, so let's have a look at 1 Corinthians uh, 15 today. Um, we've been having a look at spiritual gifts, and now we're on to uh, quite a shift in the passage. We've been helpfully learning about things like prophecy and tongues, um, which we experienced this morning. Uh, I, I bought a tongue myself. Um, we've had uh, prophetic words from Malik and from Christine, from Nick and Carolyn, um, and uh, we had the interpretation there from Andrew. Uh, we're learning in all of these things. We're getting going. But um, we're so grateful that God loves to speak to us, to encourage us and, and build us up. Uh, now we're having a look at uh, the resurrection, which Paul starts to write about, and what is the, really the foundation of Christian faith. I wonder what you believe happens when we die. What's next after life? Is it even worth thinking about? Some people say, why bother with even thinking about what happens when you die? So can't be sure of it. It's a waste of time. We're uncertain. Let's not bother thinking about it. It doesn't really affect now. What matters now is what happened in the past and what's happening now. Your, your present, if you like, determines your future. Now, while there's some truth in those things, I like what Nietzsche says. He says, the future influences the present just as much as the past. The future influences the present just as much as the past. So what we believe about the future influences our present. It affects the way that we live. It affects the way we act, the, way, the decisions we make, what we prioritize, the way we talk, what our hopes are, um, how we behave, what we think is right and wrong. So whether you believe we die and that's it, nothing else, just dead in the ground, or whether you think that we have some sort of spiritual existence beyond the grave, some sort of ethereal kind of spiritual thing that the Corinthians had got into, or whether you believe in the resurrection of the dead, those beliefs about the future affect our lives in the present. And just like there's a chemical reaction, you know, if you ever did that um, school experiment where they give you some potassium and you threw it in a dish of water and it fizzed and you were all excited, and then, you know, you got on with the serious work of writing books and so on, for a moment you were temporarily excited that the, you know, science lab might explode. In the same way, you know, when the potassium hits the water, there's a chemical reaction. Something happens and there's a response. And in the same way, Paul's going to write here that there's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's, there's a, almost like a chemical reaction that goes on. There's resurrection reactions. So let's read the passage together. It's quite a long one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 34. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also to me, from least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, also in Christ, shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, Uh, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. (laughs) If you're a little bit confused by that, you're not the only one. Otherwise, here comes an even more confusing bit. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So verse 1, Paul needed to remind the Corinthians of something they had long forgotten, they, they thought they'd moved beyond it to something more spiritual, more supernatural. They needed to be reminding of this gospel of first importance that they had received and which you never grow out of. Uh, we all need reminding daily of the gospel. Uh, it's the thing on which our past depends. It says that it's the gospel that we received. At some point in time, we received the gospel. We heard it for the first time, and if you're a Christian here, there's a point at which you said yes to the gospel. Yes, I believe that. Yes, that's true of me. I'm sinful. God has died, uh, sent Jesus to die in my place for my sins, and you've accepted it and acknowledged Jesus as your Lord. It's also the gospel in which we stand. It's the thing in the present moment which is of vital importance to us. It's the most important thing about our life, about us, about the truth of the message that God has given. It's based on our future. It's the thing through which we are being saved. It's the way in which God is making us like Jesus. He's saving us by this gospel. It's this gospel that we owe absolutely everything to. It's the basis, the foundation of our life. 
It's the thing that means that we're called Christians. It's the thing that makes us believers. It's the thing that, that means we call ourselves followers of Jesus. Without it, everything we do is empty. It's in vain. It's without basis. There's no point in it. We should all go home and do something else with our Sunday mornings, he says in verse 2. What is this gospel then of first importance that we've received and passed on? Well, verses 3 to 4 outlines what many people uh, believe to be a creed that the early church read, a statement of faith, of belief um, that they read to themselves, which we're going to do at the end um, in response. It was a foundation of their belief. It says, verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. It identifies Jesus as the Messiah that the Old Testament had prophesied about, that the whole of the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament is full of predictions, of prophecies about who Jesus is, what he would be like, what he would do for us. And what Paul does is he identifies Jesus with that Messiah. Carolyn was prophesying about that and reading that passage this morning speaking of exactly that. That Jesus um, is identified with a suffering servant in Isaiah 53, which is one of those prophecies where it talks about him being wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that God laid on him the iniquity of us all, the things that are wrong with us, our failures, our weakness, that he bore our iniquities, that he bore the sin of many, and that he makes intercession for the transgressors for us. Paul's already reminded them in chapter 11, verse 24, that Christ died for you. That Jesus died on our behalf, in our place, for our sin. That whilst Jesus was on the cross, if we believe in him, we are in Christ, dying on the cross with him, for our sins. That he's died in our place. That it should have been us hanging there on the cross, paying the penalty for the things that we've done wrong. But he died there on our behalf in our place. This is the language that some theologians call substitutionary atonement. God is paying the penalty on our behalf in our place. Jesus is our substitute on the cross. Verse 4, that Jesus was buried. He was buried in a grave of a man called Joseph. He was wrapped in linen cloths. His lungs breathed their last. His heart was still. No pulse. No life in him at all. He was dead. But that on the third day, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that just as the Old Testament testifies and predicted, and as Jesus predicted of himself as well, that he would rise again on the third day. Jesus said um, that if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. He predicted his own resurrection. He came back to life in the grave. His lungs were filled with air again. He was um, living again. His heart was beating. He had a pulse and he rose from the dead and he continues to be alive to this day. This is not just a story conjured up by human wisdom, which the Corinthians had got into and trusted. This isn't a story you'd make up. This is the story of a man called Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, who died on the behalf of sinners like you and me, it's, an, it's not just a nice idea, it's not a metaphor, it's not a spiritual thing, idea, it's an objective reality. It's a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago. And Paul smashes this home in verses 6 to 8, 
He smashes home the message that this is a historical event, an objective reality. And he lists a series of people who Jesus appeared to after he was raised from the dead. He lists Peter, the 12 who followed him. 500 people, some of who are still alive at the time of writing and could testify to the truth that I saw Jesus after his death on the cross. Uh, to James, Jesus' brother, and to a group of people considered by then apostles, and then to Paul himself. And Paul identifies himself with this tradition of people who saw Jesus after he was risen from the dead. A tradition that we now share in as Christians, that we've had an encounter with the risen Jesus. That's what we claim, isn't it, as Christians? We have a relationship with Jesus himself. We talk to him, we pray to him. We know how he feels about us. We talk to him about our problems, our lives. We have a relationship with him. We have encountered him in his person. In verse 8, he talks about the effect of this encounter with the risen Jesus on his life. And he uses this term of himself in the Greek, ektroma. It means an, an abortion, that he was almost, um, he's, he's defending really the fact that he's an apostle to the Corinthians. They've put him down and are disregarding him. And he uses this word abortion to talk of himself can mean miscarriage as well. That um, He's almost considered like an aborted baby is treated in society today. Lowly, subhuman, least of all apostles, he says, discarded. But, he says, the grace of God has taken him from being a persecutor of the church. There was a time when Paul was... Uh, going from town to town, murdering people who had been Jews and had claimed that Jesus died and resurrected from the dead. And they'd been murdering people, but it was now the foremost proclaimer of that very gospel message he was killing people for, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And this was the grace of God to him, that he, most of all, deserved to be on the cross instead of Jesus. But the grace of God has meant that Jesus was di- died in his place, and now he can live a new life. And God has changed him from the inside, from being a murderer, from being somebody who's proclaiming this gospel message of Christ's love for people. And this is the grace of God that works too in you and I, if we call ourselves Christians, that we've had a moment of realisation that perhaps we weren't a murderer like Paul, but there is a God in heaven who knows everything about us knows the worst of us, knows those things that you wouldn't want to tell everybody here, knows the things that make you feel shameful, that make you feel guilty. If you're a Christian here, you would have had that moment of realisation, I'm a sinner, I've done things wrong, that deserved to be me on the cross paying for my sins. But God loves us just the way we are, but too much to leave us that way. He has intervened by his grace. He's decided to treat us differently to how we deserve. He's positioned us in Jesus. We've died for our sins on the cross, been resurrected with him. And now we're seated in heavenly places in Christ, next to God the Father, known and loved by him, called a son of his loved eternally. Nothing we can do ever will change that. And that reality is living in our hearts that God has made new. It's given us a new heart with new desires to love and obey God. And that's changing us from the inside out. And the grace of God is changing us from who we were into the likeness of Jesus.
verse 11, this is the gospel we've received. This is the gospel we all have in common. This is the gospel we're standing on. This is the gospel by which we're being saved and which we have believed. Maybe you're not a Christian here today or you wouldn't have called yourself a Christian. Are you having that moment of realisation that there's a God in heaven who knows all everything about you, the good but also the really ugly? The good news is that despite that, He has made a way for those sins to be removed as far as the east is from the west from you. For you to know Jesus' life for yourself. And for those of us who are Christians here today, are we reminding ourselves constantly of this gospel of first importance? First things first, we remind ourselves of the gospel. A second thing uh, Paul talks about is that Christ being raised is our foundations. The Corinthians had become skeptical of the fact of the resurrection uh, in the future. That they'd kind of come to believe in a kind of ethereal spiritual existence after death. That your soul kind of floated out of your body as it were and lived on eternally but your body was no good. It was kind of the evil part of you and you did away with it. Just kind of typical Greek thinking, if you heard of the philosopher Plato who believed in a soul that was entrapped inside a body, the body was evil, brought you down, made you do bad things, your soul was really truly good and it was awaiting escape at death and would live in a spiritual existence afterwards. They'd come to start to believe that kind of thing. They thought they'd reached spiritual maturity, that they'd received the spirit and arrived. You know, they were speaking in tongues and prophesying and thought, we've really arrived spiritually. And now whatever you need for eternity, we have. And soon we'll be rid of our bodies and be able to live eternally in our spirits. And many Christians today are unsure about what happens to us when we die. Many have this idea of the kind of immortality of the soul. Our soul kind of drifts off and lives spiritually perhaps that's you today perhaps you're not a christian here today and you're skeptical of what happens after death that even if there even is anything that perhaps we just die and that's it verses 12 to 9 paul's going to argue that if there's no resurrection in the future then even jesus can't have been resurrected and as christians we should be pitied because we've put our hope in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If it hasn't happened, we have no hope. We're living this Christian life that's t- utterly pointless and has lost its foundation and basis. We've even misrepresenting God. We're saying that Jesus was raised from the dead by God, came out of the tomb alive, and yet we're saying something that never really happened, that God didn't even do. We're putting our hope on a failure, a no-hoper, giving hope where there isn't any. We're putting all our eggs in a bottomless basket. We're entering the World Cup sweepstakes with all the hope that we'll get Spain and end up getting Peru. We're, We're to be pitied. We've got no hope if Jesus hasn't resurrected. Our faith is futile. It's pointless. It's without basis. It's empty. We're still in our sins. And those who have died, believing in Jesus and hoping they'd be raised from the dead in the future, are just dead in the ground. They've perished, he says. They've no hope. The foundation of our faith is pulled from beneath our feet. Our existence as Christians, as believers, as a church, is without foundation if Christ hasn't 
risen from the dead. Good news, Paul says, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That Paul, and as Christians, assert, like we together assert that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. It's a historical event, an objective reality that we believe you can argue, reason, and defend as truth. There was uh, the first disciples, Peter and John, when they went to the tomb, sorry, when they got told that Jesus was alive again, they didn't go, oh, somebody's risen from the dead, have they? Okay, good news. I'll go tell some people. They go, what a load of rubbish. You're out of your mind, Mary, and others. And they go off to the tomb to check it out. Because anybody with a brain cell, if I told you oh, so-and-so raised, was risen from the, raised from the dead, you, you don't go, all right, yeah. You go, seems unlikely. Maybe check this out for myself and maybe probably prove you wrong. And that's what Peter and John went off to do. Checked it out for themselves and so should we. So what evidence is there then that Jesus was raised from the dead? If it's the foundation and basis of our faith, what evidence do we have for it? Because we should have some, right? Yeah. Some of them said that... um, Perhaps Jesus swooned on the cross. It's called the swoon theory. Perhaps he, he fainted. Um, he died. He, it looked like he died on the cross, but actually he fainted. They took him down, wrapped him in linen cloths, put him in the tomb. And this was after he'd had a Roman beating, lashings, beatings, to within an inch of his life. The kind of beating that many um, died from didn't even make it to the cross. After that, after being hung on the cross, after pushing up on the nails that were in his feet and lifting himself up so he could breathe, and then sinking back down into the blood that was filling his lungs. He just fainted, went into the tomb, revived, because of maybe the morning dew a couple of days later, unwrapped the linen cross, managed to push away a stone that a group of Roman guards had to put in front of the tomb entrance, pushed his, walked past Roman guards who were trained executioners, whose lives depended on making sure that nobody came out of that grave and that nobody nicked the body. And he walked off and told people that he'd been risen from the dead. I think I know which story involves more faith. Some say perhaps it was stolen by the Romans or the Jewish leaders. That they kind of came in, stole the body. They didn't want anybody kind of making a hero of Jesus. They wanted him dead, done with, finito. So maybe they stole the body, hid it, so that nobody would make like a, you know, a special place out of his grave. People wouldn't go there and honor him as some sort of virtuous teacher and he'd continue to have a following. But what happened afterwards is that Christians grew in number, claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead and Jews were turning from being Jews and becoming Christians and following, becoming followers of the way, as they were called at the time. They were a nuisance to the Jews who were saying people are, are kind of walking away from the faith. To the Romans, they were a pest as well. There was this huge group of followers who were saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were growing in number all the time. Perhaps they would revolt and overthrow the Romans. As Christians became a nuisance to both the Romans and the Jews, if the Jews or the Romans wanted to quash the uprising, they could have just said, here's Jesus' body. We took it from the tomb. Look, he's he's not alive. Your, Your faith is without basis. Here, here's his body. We killed him on the cross and here he is. But they didn't. 
Some have said perhaps it was stolen by their disciples. You know, they wanted to keep his body as kind of a memoir. He was their master, their teacher for three years. They wanted to kind of honor him. Um, but what motive would they have had for that? How would they have done it? How would they have got past the guards? How would these fishermen have got past trained killers, rolled away the stone, carried Jesus away? And later on, all of the disciples, except for one in John, died as a result of their belief. They were telling people, Jesus died for you and was raised from the dead. But if they knew he was really dead and had stolen his body, would they have gone to their death stating that it was the case? It's unlikely that they would have been willing to have been stoned or hung upside down on the basis that of something that they knew wasn't true because they, in fact, had stolen the body themselves. Some have said perhaps it's a myth. That this, you know, they've just kind of, somebody just made the story up and it's kind of evolved over the years. People have told the story differently and it's kind of evolved into this story that we have now of a, a God rising from the dead. The problem is if the disciples made up that story perhaps they would have made themselves look a bit better. <laughs> if you know the story of the Gospels, the disciples don't come out of it looking great, do they? Yeah? They come out looking like a rotten bunch of so-and-sos. You know, unfaithful friends, cowards, and so on. They probably wouldn't have written a story like this if they wanted it to do them any good. It's also a style of literature that doesn't exist until the 19th century. Realistic fantasy doesn't exist until the 19th century. And also, Paul says in, his, in the passage here that some are still alive, that when Paul was writing this, some are still alive who've seen him. So if Paul had been writing, and presumably the church had been saying, Jesus has risen from the dead, there were those who could have gone, no, he didn't. 500 people saw him at one time. Some of them would go, well, no, he didn't. But no, there was some of those 500 going around telling the story of how they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Some have said maybe it was a conspiracy. But again, why, why make up a conspiracy and then die for something you know isn't true that you just made up? And also, why would you make women the first witnesses to the resurrection? In the first century AD, women couldn't testify in court. So their testimony was useless why would you make women the first witnesses of the resurrection? You wouldn't. You'd make it men if you were trying to get people to believe your story. Some have said maybe people were hallucinating. 500 at one time hallucinating the resurrection of Jesus, a resurrection appearance, or the 12, or Peter, and so on. Part of the problem with this is that hallucinations are private and subjective. If you hallucinate, you're the one that experiences. There's no such thing as a collective hallucination. There's no record of them. It's not possible. And these resurrection appearances happened over a period of 40 days to multiple people. People thought they saw a ghost. Jesus said, here, put your hands in the nails uh, where the nails were. He ate with them, talked with them. And it explains the resurrection appearances, but it doesn't explain why we've got an empty tomb. Final one, others have said, perhaps it's mistaken identity. This is the, the, the Islamic explanation. The disciples were at the foot of the cross, literally right beneath him, looking up at him. 
This man they had been with for three years, who they loved most. He also makes them liars. Just lying about somebody they, th- they thought was died, but, but hadn't really. So the evidence leads to the conclusion, however likely, that Jesus was raised from the dead. You might say, but resurrection doesn't happen. I know. <laughs> That's why it's a miracle. If we said resurrection happens all the time, then it wouldn't be impressive that Jesus had been raised from the dead. I know it's really unlikely. But the evidence seems to suggest that that is indeed what happened, that Christ has been raised from the dead. If you're uh, unsure of the resurrection of the dead, maybe you're a visitor here and you'd like to read more about it, there's a great book by Frank Morrison, I've mentioned it before, called Who Moved the Stone? If you come and see me at the end, I'd love to give you one um, so you can read it. It details some of the things I've just talked about in more detail. Tim Keller says this, Nothing in history can be proven the way we can prove something in a laboratory. However, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact much more fully attested to than most other events of ancient history we take for granted. And the third thing that Paul writes about is a resurrection reaction. Why is the resurrection so foundational? What difference does it make to us? I talked about the potassium in water. There's a reaction. In the same way, when Jesus was raised from the dead, there was a reaction. And verses 20 to 34 focus in on those questions. And it offers, Paul offers three answers, uh, three ways in which the resurrection of Jesus caused a reaction. Look at verses 20 and 23. He calls Jesus the first fruits. What does he what does he mean by that? He's using an agricultural analogy. When you've got a crop, you kind of pluck the first fruits of the crop, you taste it, and then you've got the first fruits of that harvest. You know what that crop is going to be like. You know the quality of it, the taste of it, what it's going to produce. In the same way, Jesus is the first fruits of the full harvest that's coming. He's the first resurrection from the dead, from the full harvest of resurrection when we are raised from the dead at the end of time too. If you think of a kind of manufacturing analogy, you make a prototype of a product, don't you? And you kind of, you know, you show everybody, this is, what, this is our prototype. This is what you'll be buying when you buy your new Hoover. It, it'll, it'll be like this. It'll, you know, Hoover like this. It'll be of this quality. You go, oh, I like that. I'll buy one on the basis that it's going to be exactly like this one. Or if uh, you go and visit a new, you're looking for a new house, you go and see a show home. You walk around it. It's a pledge from the building company, isn't it? We'll build you a house that looks like this one. Walk around it, see if you like it, and we'll build one exactly like it. It's a pledge. All the other houses will look like this one. They'll be as good as this. Of this quality carpet, of this kind of paint on the walls, this is what your kitchen will look like, etc., etc. Christ is the first fruits of the full harvest that's coming. Jesus' resurrection has set in motion a series of events that is inevitable It's an inevitable chain of events which is resulting in our resurrection that's coming when Jesus returns. He's the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. It's sure, it's certain. Nothing can stop it from happening. That's the basis of of our Christian faith. We have a hope of eternal life through the resurrection that one day when Jesus returns, our bodies will be raised from the ground And we'll meet Jesus in the air in new uh, physical resurrected bodies that will last for eternity. 
and will enjoy relationship with God forever. And Paul makes an analogy between Adam and Jesus that we're all like Adam in our humanity. We share his humanity. His, we all have in common our brokenness, our sinfulness, the way we've transgressed, step over boundaries we shouldn't have, that we've we're full of iniquity, that we've failed in many ways, that we're aware that God can see everything about us and it's not a pretty picture. But that in Jesus, he's begun a new humanity, that he's the second man. Adam is the first man, Jesus the second man. We either have everything in common with Adam or we have everything in common with Christ. We either um, are sinful, broken people, which leads to death like Adam, through Adam all die, or we live in Christ, the new man, and we live in him and are made alive by him. That we share in his resurrection, that the life of Jesus becomes our own, and we have the sure and um, certain promise of being resurrected like Jesus was at the end of time. And so when when we identify ourselves not with Adam anymore, but with Jesus, we get baptized like Bev's going to next week. We go under the water, representing that we have died with Christ on the cross. And we come out of the water, raised to life with Christ. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe you wouldn't have called yourself a Christian before, but maybe today if you say Jesus is my Lord and I believe God raised him from the dead you will be saved, you'll have that hope of resurrection in the future so that's the first thing, the first resurrection reaction we can be raised to just as Jesus was that our hope in the future affects our presence and our confidence that we're in Christ we're not in Adam anymore, we're in Christ and we have a hope of an eternal life um, through the resurrection Verses uh, uh, 4 to 28, uh, Paul starts to talk about how all of history is moving towards an inevitable moment when Jesus will return, that the defeat of death will be complete and consummated, that even though people still die now, there'll come a time when death will ultimately be defeated, the dead will be raised in Christ, and the kingdom of life that Jesus reigns and rules over will be handed over to God the Father so that God will be supreme in every way over everything from the beginning of time to the end so that God may be as he says in the passage all in all that we will all be subject to God's rule and reign over everything in Jesus regardless of whether we die in Adam or we come alive in Christ we're under God's reign and rule So that's the second reaction. We'll all be subject to God's rule over everything in Jesus. And the final thing, verses 29 to 34, there's some confusing kind of quips that Paul makes, all linking uh, Jesus' resurrection to our present hope and therefore how we live our lives. So what are we to make of um, those tricky little bits? Well, um, uh, it's difficult to be conclusive about a lot of these bits, but this is, this is my best attempt um, and others who I'm stealing it from. Uh, verses 29, it seems that oddly, perhaps, they'd been baptizing people on behalf of the dead, which Paul says is a contradiction if resurrection isn't coming because baptism is a picture of resurrection. 
that there's no hope of life beyond the grave except through Jesus' resurrection. Our hope is in him. Verses 30 to 30 and 32, Paul says that he risked danger, even risked his life for the sake of delivering this gospel message of Jesus dead and raised for us. So the resurrection is worth risking our lives for. This gospel of first importance is worth suffering the rejection of friends. It's worth experiencing the derision of work colleagues. It's worth the scoffs and the mockings of family. It's worth it so that those people would have the hope for themselves because some will believe. It's worth sticking your neck out for. It's worth arguing for. It's worth trying to persuade people of. It's worth unsettling yourself from the comfort and ease of life to live life with more suffering and more difficulty and more pain for the sake of this gospel of first importance. If there's no hope of the resurrection life, we should be pitied. We should despair of life itself. Paul says, eat eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But the truth is that Jesus has been raised. We do have hope for the future that should affect our present. Verses 33 to 34. It's clear from what Paul's saying that not believing in the resurrection had corroded the Corinthians' behavior. That because they'd stopped believing in it, their lives had stopped matching the gospel. That somehow their lack of belief in the resurrection led them to doing things with their life that just wasn't consistent with Christian faith. The Corinthians had been keeping bad company with people who um, called themselves Christians but denied the resurrection. And it's a warning that we should continually remind ourselves of the gospel, like I was saying at the start, that we should be careful of the sermons we listen to online, of the books that we read, that we should remind ourselves continually of this gospel, that our sins have been forgiven, Um, this gospel that's been confirmed in our hearts, that we have a hope of resurrection life. So are there areas of your life that don't quite match up with the gospel, that if you believe in the resurrection, you not only have hope for the future, but you live for that future as well? You've got this confidence that one day I'm going to be resurrected from the dead, see Jesus face to face and be like him. And he's given me a heart that wants to love and obey him until that point when I see him face to face. And so I don't do the things that I kind of sometimes want to do that are no good for me and don't love others. Instead, I live a life that honors God, that loves him and obeys him and lives for Jesus. I don't live for my comfort. I don't live for the um, intimacy of somebody else, from the affirmation of others, I live for Jesus Christ. And I live that way until I see him face to face. So are there areas of your life that don't quite match up, that you just know in your heart of hearts, as a Christian, I can't follow Jesus and do this thing at the same time, whatever that might be. And if you don't believe in the resurrection... What we believe about the future affects how we live our lives. If we don't believe in the resurrection and have a hope that's coming, what basis do we have for being moral? If life is just the end and we die and we're in the grave, why does it matter whether you're loving or not? Why does it matter if you do right or wrong? Why does it matter if you're good or bad? What basis do we have for being moral people if there isn't the hope of eternal life with God being made like Jesus?
the band want to come back and we're going to sing some songs that um, remind us of these gospel truths, these, the gospel of first importance, remind ourselves of first things first, that Christ died for us and has been raised to life so that we too might be raised. And uh, when we do that, we're going to start off by reciting verses 3 to 4 to a, together, declaring what we believe together, this gospel of first importance, and then we'll sing some songs together. <laughs> 